This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome again to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. I am the author of Embracing the Abyss. It's a true story of unknowingly becoming part of a fraud scandal, receiving a presidential pardon, and being surprised by a spiritual awakening. Yep, you got it. I'm the guy that has the presidential pardon. Today's feature, again, is the reading of the various chapters in my book, Embracing the Abyss. And it's uh, it's been successful in doing this. People like it. I um, and I like it too. <laughs> so let's uh, let's begin. <clears throat> Chapter thirteen is about Steve. In the interviews I attended as the representative from Vernon Savings, requested by the FHLBB. Federal Home Loan Bank Board, during the summer of 1986, I heard the law firm Winston, McGuire, Sechrist, and Minnick referred to more than once. Apparently, these attorneys were held in high regard by the officials that questioned me. So I made an appointment to meet Bill Sechrist in December 86 in downtown Dallas. I was ushered into Bill's office. He stepped out from behind his desk to to greet me. He was a tall guy with a powerful but not forceful presence. I introduced myself and he asked me to sit down. I sat across the desk from him and began describing the nature of my needs to see if he felt like he could be of help. In anticipation, excuse me, in anticipation of my appointment with him, he said he had contacted certain individuals at the FHLBB to get a feel for the kind of person he was meeting. That's me. He explained the billing structure and the type of legal services he thought might come into play. After giving this a lot of thought, he suggested that I visit with Steve Bruchet, a friend of his who was a partner in a smaller law firm in the Cedar Springs area. He described Steve as well-respected by his peers and having versatile skills. He handed me Steve's contact information. Then I thanked him and left. At that point, my only need was civil in nature. It concerned my delinquent note to Paris Savings, secured by stock of another savings and loan, a Woody arrangement that I had been permitted to participate in, did I have participate in. Sandia, the name of the deal, was now crashing down around all those permitted. 
I called Steve and scheduled an appointment for the coming week. He seemed interested in me, meeting me. And as I hung up the phone, I was glad that I would finally meet someone who could help me. I sensed that something was beginning, yet ending as well. I couldn't define it, but I had the feeling that whatever it was had been waiting patiently to occur. Something forged a long time ago was about to begin its own journey. The particular journey requires for some uh, preparedness to understand beyond certain scientific approaches to understand what's known as phenomena. Dictionaries have explained deja vu, literally already seen. And deja vu is the feeling of having already lived through something. Both of these moments involve a sense of recollection, recollection <clears throat> with circumstances that may be uncertain or sometimes believed to be impossible. A recollection. There were a number of us in the room, but I don't remember seeing any walls. Rooms are supposed to have walls. It was cloudy. We were cloudy, like looking through smoke through each other, but there was no smoke. Each of the shadow beings moved with a purpose. Plans were being made for lifetimes already assigned with designated outcomes. Some formed soul contracts, our commitment cast as a defined agreement with Steve. Each of us promised to fulfill the destiny we were assigned and assumed for each other. Parents and siblings were carefully selected for their roles in the creation of long-lasting lessons in the upcoming lifetimes. The boy, John Smith, was born mid-September in Nashville. His friend and defender, Steve Bruchet, was born less than a week later in Dallas. It would take 38 years for their paths to cross again. It was time for them to begin the undertaking that had vowed to complete in that cloudy, smoky-looking expanse without walls. If I could have seen this coming, I would have warned myself. But I knew not. Had I known in this life that what lay ahead, I would have shared such awareness, trusting that the understanding would be embraced by those still unaware. Over the years, I learned that previous lifetimes exist for each of us. Well over 50% of the earth believes in some form of pre-existence. Yes, there really is life again after death. Each new life begins with joy until planned lessons to be learned come into play. The plans you make for yourself to accomplish may not be easy, for they are karmic. They are designed to learn what you did not learn in your previous engagement with spirit and with life. Getting and then giving your soul a second chance is a blessing in itself. 
A higher consciousness awaits for those who ask. I began to focus on the future. Steve's office was just a few blocks away and I realized I shouldn't started thinking about the future sooner. Realized I should have started thinking about the future sooner. His office building was two-story wooden structure and fit the characteristics of a boutique law firm popping up in this uptown Dallas neighborhood. Other law firms like that. After coming downstairs to meet me, we headed to his office, which had a comfortable feel with lots of pictures of his kids, and the rest could correctly be classified as an organized mess. After all, like me, he was a Virgo. So things are appropriately in order, just a little messy. Steve was taller than I and had a, slight, a slighter build. He had dark hair, dark eyes that were kind. I could tell right away by the way he smiled that he enjoyed life. We talked a little bit about the issue that had brought me to him, my note at Paris Savings, and the stock transfer that would hopefully cure the delinquency. After discussing the business at hand, I committed on the small replica, uh, I, I commented on the small replica of a basketball hoop sitting on the corner of his desk. He opened his desk drawer, pulled out some ping pong like balls, tossed one towards me and said, you go first. Neither of us were any good at it, but both of us were competitive and neither of us liked to lose. I was lucky enough to meet an attorney who was not only good at his trade, but was good at looking at what life is doing to you and what you're doing with your life. In, in 1987, April, four months after Steve and I met, I was sued civilly by the FSLIC for $330 million, which eventually increased to $540 million as they discovered more of Dixon's and Woody's fraud. I was one of seven senior officers at Vernon Savings to be served with the Vernon Savings lawsuit. When you talk about being served with a lawsuit, it's not one of those scenes in the movies or on TV where you see someone avoiding getting served the envelope, trying to tap you on the shoulder or catch you in frustration, trying to run to hide in the bathroom. No. A constable came to my home in Coppell and asked, are you John Smith? I said, yes, I am. I have this for you. He reached to his left leaned over and dragged a huge box across my front porch to where I was standing. It was packed full of documents, depositions, pleadings, wrongdoings, knowing fraud, and racketeering. But I didn't do anything. I just worked there. How could this happen? How could this be happening to me? I worked too hard for this to happen. Why was this happening to me? After I served the big box, after I was served the big box on my front porch, I contacted Steve and told him what I had. He asked me to bring it to him so he could begin reviewing the documents. Not knowing that I was getting myself into 
what I was getting myself into. I bought a new car. My logic was that I soon would no longer be able to get credit for a car loan because of the FSLIC lawsuit. So I bought a new Jeep Grand Cherokee. Steve received a notice from the court regarding the civil FSLIC case asking all defendants and their attorneys to appear in court at 10 a.m. on Thursday morning. I headed to Steve's office so we could ride together. On the way, I had an altercation. I don't recall doing anything abnormal. I passed a truck, a pickup truck. Apparently the male driver of the truck didn't like getting passed. So he followed me into the parking lot of Steve's office. I parked just to the right of the front steps and stayed in the new SUV to see what this weirdo was going to do. Out of the truck bounds a tall, skinny, ugly guy with a terrible pock-marked face and a beer bottle in one hand. He headed towards me and my new SUV. He charged me in the car and the car cussing and swearing, yelling about rich guys that get away with everything. He proceeded to kick in the driver's door with what he looked like a size 10 beat up work boot. Steve heard the commotion outside, yelled he was calling the police. The combination of Steve's presence and informative language was enough for the guy to jump into his truck and drive away, beer in hand. As we observed the damage to the door, Diva asked, is this your car? I said, yes. When did you buy it? I replied, a couple of days ago. He said, John, you just don't get it, do you? You just don't get it. I shared my logic with Steve about it being the last chance I'd have to buy a new car, and it'd be a long time before I'd be able to get credit. Steve said with pity, I mean pity in his voice, John, credit is not the issue. After the feds finish with you, you won't have any money to make the payments on the loan. You need to get ready to be wiped out. Don't you understand that you're going to be wiped out? Thus far, his message had not sat very well in my head. I couldn't see it happening to me because I didn't do anything. I took no money. I committed no fraud. I didn't do anything. We got in the car and were running a little late due to the pockmarked pickup drama. We went to the Earl Cabell building downtown and rode the elevator to the eighth or ninth floor to find an empty courtroom. No one was there, only us. Steve went to the clerk's office in the back to find out what was going on. The hearing that had been postponed because the judge did not think it was a good idea to have all those defendants in the same room at the same time with all their lawyers. I'm guessing Steve had not been in the loop long enough to receive my notices. I felt silly thinking on the way over that I would be identified and relinquished from any further obligation. They were supposed to figure out that I didn't belong in the lawsuit. I was stricken with a total lack of vision about what was going to happen. 
We drove back to Steve's office and made plans for me to meet with him to begin counseling on the new real world, my part in Vernon's savings. The last thing he said to me as he closed the door was, take this car back. The next day, I took the car to the dealership and parked it outside the sales office. I found the guy who sold me the car. I told him I couldn't keep the car and was returning it. He was irate. He got close enough to the driver's side door and saw the kicked-in damage. He then shifted from irate to berserk. He was yelling at the top of his lungs. You can't do this. You have a contract. You can't do this. Who caused this damage? I replied, some ugly guy kicked in the door. Salesman said, that doesn't matter. You can't bring this car back. I don't have any choice, I said. I've just been sued by the FSLIC for $350 million. My attorney said to bring it back. Here it is. I am sorry. I developed something comforting to get me through this time, and when I looked back, I call it my net theory. The net theory goes like this. When going through the fish caught by the net, the feds would study their catch. Sometimes that catch, they catch fish that don't belong in the net, like a smith fish. I'm one of those fish. I don't belong here. Pretty soon they're going to let me go. I'm going to get to swim free. I'll leave and not look back because they're going to leave me alone. I didn't do anything. I only worked there. One thing that I learned from Steve is that lawyers have a grapevine that we civilians don't. They know when things are happening before we do. Because it wasn't long after the FSLIC suit was filed that he began to hear noise from other lawyers that criminal charges against the seven defendants, including me, and Vernon Savings were on their way. <clears throat> the regulators had moved quickly to organize the Justice Department for an invasion. The FBI had formed and staffed a number of task forces, one of which was in Dallas. The lawsuit filed by the FSLIC was soon followed by FBI criminal investigations. They came to town looking for blood, guts, and headlines. <clears throat> An attorney friend of mine formed this view of the FBI guys when he would sit in on FBI meetings when defendants were being questioned, trying to determine what they were looking at and where they were going. His conclusion was that their attitude was, we don't care who you are or who you were, whether you were the president, the bills clerk, or the lawyer presenting any of them, representing any of them, because all of you are cut out of the same cloth. You're a crook, you're a lawyer is a crook, your clerks are clerks. We'll just round everybody up and throw them in a pen and let the Justice Department sort it out about who's guilty and who's not. That was a very sad upcoming coming on. Steve continued working with me because it didn't matter what I did or didn't do. His purpose was to get me to focus on the large amount of pretense that existed at Vernon Savings, followed by colossal denial. Mine, 
my own denial. Steve and I had some terrific yelling sessions. Steve had to do that to get me to listen to him. I sometimes just would not listen and only argued in return. And I didn't do anything, that I didn't do anything. This almost drove him nuts. Asked, <clears throat> Steve asked me about certain documents he was given by the FBI. He had a copy of the minutes of an executive committee meeting showing me in attendance. I then informed him that there were never any executive committee meetings. We soon learned that Dixon and Wooden, Woody had created fake documents like this. In due time, we would also learn that the minutes of the board meetings in Vernon were also revised extensively by Woody and Junior for acquisitions, loan amounts, and delinquent loans. Up to this point, I don't think Steve was 100% convinced that I was telling him the truth, all the truth. However, he connected with some of the other defendants, attorneys, and the FBI and confirmed what I was telling him. After all, I handled liquidity as my responsibility during the last year of operation. So in fact, I was keeping the pirate ship afloat. What I began to realize from Steve beating on me was that he should have been a nun, and I don't mean the Mother Teresa kind, I mean the nasty school teacher nuns. For instance, if we were sitting at a table talking about what I did and didn't do, I would say, but I didn't do anything. That's when he would pick up the nearest thing to him and hit me with it just to get my attention. He almost ran out of rulers over time. When he had to beat me up to get me to realize that it wasn't a matter of if I'm going to prison, it was almost a certainty. I was already on my way. No two ways out about it. I was already on my way. I just didn't know it. I couldn't see it. I didn't do anything, but whether I did or did not, it didn't matter. I had a lot of questions that I didn't have answers to. I didn't want this, but I couldn't get away from it. I couldn't get rid of it. I didn't want it, but I couldn't get it back. I had to deal with it. <clears throat> My intuition must have been working well. In mid-March, one month before I received the large box, I started seeing Dr. Brown again. <clears throat> I had resumed finding infinite ways to mentally beat myself up, digging up the old, low self-esteem of me to wallow in. If I could only pile on more and more, I could run through the brick wall and this time would only, most certainly, deserve to be rescued. But I should not, could not show this side of me to anyone other than Dr. Brown. Allowing others to know about my aching on the inside was a no-no. It's possible, I suppose, that a tendency towards depression could be genetic. It could be also in a result of a monkey see, monkey do. When I was five or six years old living in Nashville, I discovered my dad, my daddy sitting on the floor in their living room with his back to the sofa. He was crying. Daddy, why are you crying? I said. He said, I don't know, Johnny. Because he was crying, I felt like 
crying too. I asked my mama, who was the caretaker, why is daddy crying? She said, because he's sad. Why is he sad? I'm not sure, Johnny, it's a long story. My younger sister and I have been told not to cry in front of daddy, or he would start crying too. <clears throat> Later, I didn't see daddy around the house and wondered why I asked mama, and she said he was at the doctor's. That night, we went to visit daddy at the doctor's. It was a wooden, one-story building with lots of cars out front. Inside, there were rows of beds like you would find in an army barracks, except there were no beds on top of the bottom for a double, my only bottom beds, only bottom beds in the building. Each bed was occupied by male persons. Mama told my sister and me that the women had their own barracks down the block. Daddy didn't say much. He smiled a little, but seemed embarrassed that we were there. Knowing what I know now, I would have wondered if the rest of the men in the bunks in the building were dealing with PTSD from the Korean War or World War II. Daddy had flat feet, so he was declared 4F, which meant he got a pass on serving in the wars. Shortly after his stay in the barracks, we moved to Oklahoma City. Soon he would spend a year in the State Mental Institute in Norman, Oklahoma. Years later, I learned what caused my daddy to be so sad. He was suffering from depression. When growing up, he was the youngest of eight children. And at age seven, he had continued to sleep with his mother, Mammy. Then came child number nine, my uncle Roland. Daddy couldn't sleep in Mammy's bed anymore. Simply put, he was replaced by another, his brother. My daddy never got over it. He carried that loss all the way to his grave. <clears throat> I'm going to stop at the end of uh, chapter 13. That was uh, without uh, measuring. This was the longest chapter in, the, in my book. And that's because it's about Steve. <clears throat> and how the guy saved me. Next week, um, next half hour, I should say, in the show, We'll begin with chapter 14, Crossing the Rubicon. It's uh, an interesting concept, but I was living the truth of the past. I want to thank everybody for listening today. And thank you very much for tuning in to Searching for Integrity. So long and happy trails to all.